Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. So have you ever wondered what it really takes to become truly skilled an expert in ways in a new area? That is what we mean by when you become the master of it instead of you being mastered by it. So in this era of change, I think the ability to learn to master a whole new topic has never been more important. And that's because as change happens, all of us are going to have to acquire a whole new set of skills on a rather regular basis in order to stay relevant. So today we're focusing on what it takes to develop mastery and in kind of an unusual way. So I think not only is this relevant, it's really a lot of fun. My guest is Adam Gopnik. He's a staff writer at The New Yorker, and he has written for the magazine since 1986. He has three National Magazine Awards for essays, and he's particularly well-known for his criticism, particularly of art. The author of numerous best-selling books, including Paris to the Moon, but he lives in New York City, and his latest, the book we're going to talk about today, is called The Real Work on the Ma Mystery of Mastery. So, Adam, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Wanda. Pleasure to be with you. It's pleasure. And I'm super excited to talk to you about this one. I always like to start asking people at the very beginning, why? Why does this topic matter to you? What challenges were you seeing that you wanted to address? Well, it, it all began for me with a kind of double-pronged uh, moment in my own life. And I should add right away, Wanda, that this wasn't a book. I should hold the book up now, right? Yes, of course. A book that, um, that began in a, in, can I put it there? Doesn't want to stay there. Um, it wasn't a book that began in some pre-programmed high concept. Let me go out and write this book. It became much more organically than that. I bumped into somebody at a dinner party who turned out to be a drawing teacher. And I impulsively, instinctively said, would you teach me to draw? Because I had been practicing, as you mentioned a moment ago, for 40 years as an art critic who didn't know how to draw. And I suddenly felt an incredibly powerful magnetic pull towards learning the old-fashioned traditional art of life drawing. That was one part of it. And at the same time, I was watching my son at the same moment, it was then 13, 14, become totally enamored with card magic, with the, the beauties and intricacies of card magic. And it wasn't something that was much encouraged at his school, but I began to sense that it was hugely important for his self-development. And he decided or asked if he could go out to Las Vegas with his magic teacher to study what the lounge magicians were doing. That's not something that most uh, progressive schools in New York are particularly enthusiastic about. But my instincts as a father in that case were to say, yes, he's pursuing an accomplishment that is uh, emancipating for him in some way, and it should be encouraged. So out of those two things, Wanda, out of my own desire to learn something in middle age that I didn't know but could be essential to me and out of watching my own son in adolescence pursue something that didn't speak to his immediate needs in school but certainly spoke to his broader needs as a developing human being that I began writing this book. Okay, so you write this book and in the book you are you've taken on three tasks that you're not skilled at 
and you're working with somebody who is a master of those skills. And I might add, I think you know very little about the three when you begin. Why did you pick those three and what were you hoping to learn? Well, there, there, there are a few more than three, but the three essential ones are learning to draw, learning to drive, and then eventually learning to box and to dance. I also learned to got to, to be a better baker with my mother and so on. What in, attracted me were, were skills um, that were, you know, widely, in a certain sense, widely available. Lots of people know how to draw. I didn't. Lots of people, most people, most Americans know how to drive. I didn't for reasons that are idiosyncratic and tied to having grown up in in New York City. City. Um, uh, and I wanted to to study those things to see if they had anything in common. As I said, it wasn't a self-conscious pursuit. It was an organic series of inquiries. And I found that they did. I found that there was a remarkable commonality between things that seem as different at first as learning to do classical drawing, you know, where you're studying a, a naked human body in half light for a couple of weeks and learning to box, which was one of the things I, I was most taken by. And said, well, those two things can't have anything in common, right? They're totally okay. independent uh, kinds of studies. But in fact, the the process by which you master them, and I should say right away, Wanda, when I talk about mastery, I mean the internal sense of self-improvement, not some uh, external uh, approbation that you might right. get. I'm never gonna win a gold medal as a as a draftsman and i'm never going to get a belt as a boxer but it from the internal sense of of going forward what you realize is that all of those things have in common it a very simple process first you break down the activity into its smallest possible components and you worry about the tiny the small components learning those rather than focusing on the big uh 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 whole that you want to eventually to get to. And very often those little steps are very counterintuitive. Well, what do I mean by that? For instance, in learning to draw, you're not told, just look at Wanda's face and study it as closely as you can and try to figure out how to make it live, come alive on paper. That would be a hopeless task, right? For somebody who doesn't know how to draw. What you're saying to someone at that point is, look at Wanda and draw her. Well, if I knew how to draw her, I wouldn't, wouldn't be studying. Be yeah. I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be studying drawing. Great teacher tells you, look at Wanda and um, ask yourself, where does her right eyebrow fall on an imaginary clock face, superimpose a little clock face above Wanda's face, and then just do what my teacher called beautifully, tilts in time. In other words, ask where are all those, those minute gradations in the way you articulate your head? Where would they fall on that clock face? Make it very precise. Five minutes past two, your right eyebrow, six minutes past two, 10 minutes past one. And if you begin to simplify that question in that way, and for you do tilts in time for a long enough time, you begin to become aware of and sensitive to exactly the kind of minute gradations that make one face different from another. So it's counterintuitive. It's not how you would think about going, going about it. The last thing we see in the world is clock faces superimposed on the, the, the heads of our friends. But that's how you begin. Uh, that's how you begin to do it. And over time, and this is the beautiful thing. If you persevere in that kind of pursuit, it gets internalized. You no longer are doing it self-consciously. You're doing it, so to speak, naturally. It becomes what psychologists sometimes call the flow. It just enters into you as a seamless sequence that you can take on. But the same thing's true about boxing, Wanda. You know, you start boxing. 
and you think, well, I'm just going to get all my belligerence out uh, on my uh, on these pads that my coach is, is throwing up. But of course, boxing's not about belligerence. It's about ballet. It's about learning a whole set of little counterintuitive, stubborn steps, just like in drawing, where you're throwing jab, jab, cross, slip, uppercut, cross, right? And you have to learn those sequences in the same way you learn the little tilts in time. Again, very counterintuitive, right? When we're furious and angry and we start throwing punches, we don't do them with anything like that kind of systematic uh, investigation. But that's not the way you learn boxing. You learn boxing by memorizing the sequence and and just being totally uh, adherent to it until it too becomes a seamless sequence inside ourselves. And that's, I think, the universal rule for how we go about mastery. You break it down into small, stubborn, counterintuitive steps. You persevere in the pursuit of those steps. And suddenly, to your own amazement, those steps become a seamless sequence that are in some deep way internalized. Right. Um, I can imagine. So this really says so many different things. I was listening to a podcast recently about a woman who had been trying to be a concert pianist and had practiced for a ridiculous number of hours as a young person and child to be able to be a concert pianist. And her instructor kept saying to her, look, you have to be able to start in the middle of the piece. You can't always start at the beginning. You've got Because if you get messed up, you've got to be able to start. The moment of crisis comes, she hasn't internalized that flow, that sense, and she blows it. Very interesting. Or if you think about, you know, the Karate Kid, the movie, you know, wax on, wax off. I think most of us will have seen that and understand that you were doing particular moves in a sequence that then become internalized and part of the routine that you're using. Okay, so I get that from what you've been talking about, but let me give you a parallel in my world of coaching. Sure. So when I am working with people, they often get feedback that is highly ambiguous, important, but it means nothing to them, kind of like learn to draw. So they will be told, for example, you have to develop executive presence. Okay, cool. What is that? And that's just nonsense, most people think. But the only way to get executive presence to develop this is to break it down into its small component parts. And there are component parts that comprise executive presence. I think there are seven of them. And when you do each one of them in a sequence and you put the whole package together, you're going to find suddenly you have greater executive presence. But if you don't come to the small components for any feedback you get, you're never going to be able to really accelerate your development, same way as what you're talking about here. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. And, you know, one of the things that um, uh, my friend Malcolm Gladwell pointed out to me about this book and fascinating thing, Wanda, about writing books is that they contain themes and structures we're not even aware of. As we write them, he said, it's a love letter to a series of teachers. And so one of the things that almost at an unconscious level I was exploring is what makes a great teacher? It's like, you know, what gives you executive presence, right? And what it turns out to be is this very peculiar human combination of setting an incredibly high standard, which you never compromise on, and at the same time providing infinite patience in watching your student pursue that standard. That's what's necessary, right? So the great teacher isn't someone who compromises the standard so you can achieve it, but it's also not someone who is, and sometimes, you know, you I, what was that movie, Whiplash, you know, yeah. about... Um, 
the drumming teacher. That guy was a terrible teacher, right? Because he set an incredibly high standard, but then he had absolutely no patience with a student who couldn't immediately reach that standard. What great teachers do is they set an uncompromising standard, but they have infinite patience with you as long as you've made a commitment to passionately pursue the standard that they've raised. That's what makes a great teacher. It's that combination of uncompromising standards and infinite patience. Um, and I, I suspect the same thing is true about executive presence, right? The great leaders that we've all known in life are not people who are, uh, you know, brutal, uh, cold. They manage to combine uh, exactly that thing. They tell us how we can learn. I wrote an essay once, uh, Wanda, about the greatest teacher I've ever known to whom this book, The Real Work, is dedicated was a great art historian named Kirk Varnado, who was also a great football coach and was torn in life between those two vocations. But he said always that they were the same thing, right? You break down art historical periods into particular dates and particular styles. You break down football plays into all of the countless details that you have to get right. If you commit to getting the details right, the rest will happen for you. And um, that's what makes a great, is what makes a great teacher. It's not the charisma of a great teacher is the compound of that commitment to detail and that gift of presence. And what all the great teachers, and I'm sure this is true about great coaches, great executives, give us is not their system. What they give us is ourselves, is a sense that we are capable of doing more than we thought we could before. Yeah, that's the source of inspiration that they believe we are capable of doing more than we thought we were going to do. All right. You said great teacher, but I could substitute great leader as you rightly did. I could substitute great mentor. I could substitute great coach, either external or just a boss who is trying to be a great uh, manager and coaching you. It's all sort of the same process. And it's not just yelling at you and berating you and pushing you. It's that I love that infinite patience as long as you're consistently pursuing it with passion. Yeah. Very cool. Um, I think there's um, we've been talking about this, about how to be a great manager, to be a great coach, great teacher. But you could also talk about this if you were seeking that mentor or coach and what you could do for yourself as beginning to get some hypotheses about the component parts for whatever skill you're trying to master, whether it's technical or other and verify that with people and then asking for that sort of feedback that gets you mastery or more development on each little component part in sequence. I mean, you can take some control of that for yourself as well, not just dependent on somebody else. Cool. All right. Um, is there anything else you discovered that surprised you in this process of these skills? Countless things, but maybe I can, I can mention two. One is the crucial role of, uh, the audience of a of mental empathy right you know the phrase that that gives this book its title the real work derives from magicians it's a phrase magicians use all the time they say who's got the real work on floss's illusion or the the pepper ghost whatever it is and when i was listening to magicians talking when i followed my son at the age of 13 out to las vegas um to spend you know early mornings and late nights with lounge magicians it's fascinating when i heard them use this term over and over again shorthand for some kind of mastery and over time uh, wanda i realized what they meant by the real work wasn't who had the greatest technical virtuosity in doing the trick and they didn't mean who had invented it they meant who had 
such easy technical virtuosity doing the trick that they could sell it to an audience most effectively, who was most empathetically engaged with the audience's expectations. Because remember, you don't do magic tricks with your fingers, you do them with your mind. You actually you anticipate what the audience expects. You know what they're already habituated to, and you stay one step ahead of them. And that's true of all great performers, whether it's an actor doing Hamlet, who knows we've heard to be or not to be, that is the question, and has to find some way to do it that will surprise us, that will that will uh, anticipate our reaction and turn it around in some way. Or um, whether it's the running back who has to make a, you know, a, a, a surprising stunt on a broken field run. It's that gift for anticipation that's added to technical excellence that makes real mastery. And I think that that's a, that's a general truth. Our, we, we have to be engaged with the minds of others. It's true about boxing, Wanda. You know, when you're learning boxing, even if you're not sparring with someone at that time, the question you're asking yourself is, what would your opponent do in response to the blow you're throwing? Even if there is no opponent, even if it's entirely imaginary, you can only box successfully if you're constantly imagining the other who's facing you. And I think that's a very uh, profound and, and general okay. truth. It's also truth in communicating with anybody inside any modern organization is if you don't anticipate where they're starting from, whatever yep. you say is not going to land well. So, no, you know, my dad yeah. was a very wise man and was a dean of students, terrific leader in the university context for a long time, told me when I was leaving to go to New York City uh, on my own adventure, he said, just remember one thing, never underestimate the other person's insecurities. <laughs> Never underestimate the other person's insecurities, which is really profound, empathetic understanding, right? You're looking at Wanda Wallace and thinking, oh, she knows everything. She's, And yet the reality is you're um, uh, full of uh, uncertainty about how well you're performing. I'm full of uncertainty about how well I'm performing. And the more we recognize that, even about the most successful seeming people, the likely we are to engage in a genuinely empathetic um, dialogue with them and advance our own selves by virtue of it. That's a very interesting twist on this idea of anticipate where your audience is coming from is to anticipate what they're uncertain about yes, or what they're absolutely. insecure about. It's a really nice way of saying it. I hadn't thought about that one and I will use that one going forward. So thank Credit you, it. Adam. Thank Credit you, Adam's it. dad okay. too. <laughs> Irwin. Irwin. All right. So that was one thing you learned. You said there were two things that surprised you. What was the second uh, the the first thing, as I say, was the was the the uh, the role. Of the other the other was the importance of uh, adding imperfection, not being frightened of imperfection. Um, we when you think about the great performers, masters, leaders, uh, coaches, whatever we you know it might be, one of the things that they uh, that makes them stand out from the other people around them isn't that they had a kind of icy form of perfection that they offer us but that they share their human imperfection with us. What do I mean by that? I was at the Bob Dylan Museum in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, on the course of uh, of the long book tour. And uh, I, I don't know if you are, I'm a big Dylan fan who isn't, right? And there was a letter from Bob Dylan where he talks about how everybody says I don't sing very well, because when Dylan began, people said, oh, he, maybe he's a great songwriter, but he can't sing, right? He said, but I breathe better than anyone else. And if you think about it, right, what makes Bob Dylan a great singer? It's the way he breathes. You know, it's like a Rolling Stone. He doesn't doesn't uh, articulate uh, musical lines like anyone else. He breaks them in odd ways and he breathes in the middle of them. That's Bob Dylan, right? I breathe better than anyone. 
And so what Dylan was really bringing to his singing was a form of imperfection, right? A form of willed and deliberate imperfection, which communicated his distinct humanity to us, made him sound not like a robotic trained singer, but like an actual human being communicating to us. That's a very powerful thing that I think all masterly communicators instinctively share, right? They're not afraid of being imperfect. They're not afraid of adding imperfection to their uh, to their performance. Uh, they do it in a, in a myriad of ways, but that's part of what makes them effective. It's what uh, makes us recognize them as authentic. It's and authentic. it's like... And I think that's a very important thing. So those two things which relate to each other. One is empathetic anticipation and uh, fearlessness about imperfection. I think those are two crucial things that are part of the compound of mastery. It's interesting, um, uh, you know, especially in my world, working with organizations and leaders, you know, this notion of being authentic is sort of front and center in most people's minds who are trying to improve their leadership capability. But at the end of the day, authenticity is a judgment. I decide that you are authentic as a writer or as a speaker or as a leader. I never know if that's true or not true. And I think we judge that authenticity based on two polar opposite qualities. One is that you seem confident in the communication of your craft, your expertise. And at the same time, you seem humble. You're willing to admit what you don't know. And if I take either one of those out, the judgment of authenticity will go away. So confident plus humble is the kind of the secret. And you just outlined it. Imperfection yeah. is a piece of recognizing the humility. Yes, I think that's true. And you know what the most familiar form of that of that humility and imperfection? It's, it's humor. You yeah. know, what do we say is the surest sign of someone who's authentic? They have a sense of humor about themselves. I wrote a book, Wanda, about Abraham Lincoln a decade or so ago. And that was, and it was all about Lincoln's style, you know, his style as a writer, his style as a speech maker. And that was absolutely essential to it, right? Is that people understood the nobility of his aims, the authority of his pronouncements, but they also understood that it was woven into a capacity for self-deprecating humor. That was Lincoln's authenticity and both the two things had to go together um right. and i think it's true about anyone who we recognize to have those those incandescent qualities there's a second piece i love that too about uh lincoln and also having had major failures in the course of his life that would have stopped me i have to admit but any rate he comes through that one shining um second thing you said about this notion of well what we've been talking about humility or about imperfection and about Bob Dylan, that he recognizes he breathes better than anybody else. That statement is the essence, in my experience, of people getting out of their comfort zone. Yeah. Once you understand the value you bring, the thing that you're going to do better than other people, or at least as well as other people, that's what lets you reach into a space that you're not necessarily really brilliantly skilled at and continue to work. And I think it's tightly tied to this accepting I don't have to have everything perfectly. Yes, so you know. Dylan, Dylan's point was, is that I may not be a good singer the way Pavarotti yeah. is a good singer. I may not land the low, the every note perfectly, but I have something that Pavarotti doesn't have. And that's my capacity to breathe like Bob Dylan. And I think that that's that's true across a huge range of things. And yes, I agree with you. In writing, we call that finding your voice, right? That's the crucial thing in learning in writing is the moment when you land on your distinct 
an individual voice. I, in an earlier book of mine, At the Stranger's Gate, I wrote about exactly the moment when that happened to me. And it's, it can be a specific moment. And you say, ah, that's my sound, right? Musicians have the same thing, great jazz pianists, right? You hear them stumbling around imitating. It's the way we all learn, imitating other pianists. And then you say, ah, that's how I sound. And I think that that's the transformative moment in any artist's life, but in any human being's life. Like that one. That's a really nice one. Okay, before we take a break, you make a big distinction between accomplishment and achievement. So, how do you defining both of those, and why does this matter? Uh, I don't know if I can do it in 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 a short time. I'm actually writing a long, uh, uh, a separate little book, little inspirational book about just that distinction right now. Okay. For me, um, I talk about my son, right, going off at 13 to to study uh, card magic, getting obsessed with card magic. That was an accomplishment that was transformative for him. And when I was watching him do it, I was reminded of how when I was exactly the same age, I picked up a guitar like this one and uh -huh. I started searching for guitar chords, right, with no training and no teacher in that way. And that search for guitar chords that search of trying to learn how to play beatles songs myself though painful and and discouraging in some ways was the foundation on which everything else i've accomplished in life is based i'm a writer not a musician obviously but deep inside my writing style is a 12 year old uh finding chords and realizing he can make music uh, and i think that those accomplishments are very much apart from achievements by achievements i mean the tests we're told to take the select colleges we struggle to get into or to get our kids into that whole rigmarole of set tasks that we over reward in a sense. Accomplishment for me is the inner chosen, inner directed uh, thing we do for its own sake. Achievement, the thing we're made to do for someone else's sake. And my insight is not only is accomplishment more valuable in itself, but it's a better a director, a better foundation for what we want to do in life than any number of achievements. So what you're calling accomplishment is what a psychologist would call intrinsic motivation. Yeah, exactly. I'm doing this because I am interested, because I want to learn, and I'm willing to put in the hours, regardless what it takes, because it matters to me. Yes. And in fact, that's the only motivation that at the end of the day is in fact motivating. You're not yes. going to accomplish anything major if you're doing it for somebody else. You got to be doing it for your own personal reasons. That's right. And it can seem to others outside like it's wasted, like it's wasted effort, right? Why has the kid got his, his, I have a wonder, a friend who's a Scottish poet who was obsessed with Japanese origami at that same age, right? There was no future for him in doing origami. And yet he could not have become the poet that he is had he not been obsessed with origami. So what you're saying is that willingness to pursue something that I want to learn or to master maybe in ways um, for the sake of just the discovery that comes with it. And the process of doing that actually is the process we use then as adults for anything else that we're going to go on to excel at. Yes. Okay, that's right. Yes, absolutely. Because once we learn that passionate perseverance pays internally, it gives us that enormous sense of absorption, which is all that happiness is, um, then we have confidence that we can go on and, and do it. My son became a philosopher. He's not a magician anymore. But I know that he feels he can match wits with Wittgenstein because he once was able to match fingers with the with the great cardman. 
All right. Fair enough. Um, in my world, one of the banes of my existence is talking to people is they get so tied up on, I need that next title or that next level of bonus or some other version of someone else giving them a pat on the back that says, okay, you've made it. Their own internal sense of worth is gone not gone, but it's not nearly powerful enough. And the frustration that comes because you can't control those external rewards. It just doesn't happen. And somebody can move the goalpost on you without even, not even realizing it. That internal accomplishment, then you have the own judgment and your own control over how much effort I'm willing to put into it and how much it matters to me. And do I think I've made progress or not? And if I could ever get people focused on the accomplishment side versus the achievement. I think you're right. They would be much happier in their I mean, let's not, let's not be hypocrites about it, right? I'm no. a driven, ambitious person. Sure. I'm delighted when I win awards and sure. get knighthoods and whatever else I might get. I, I don't mean to to deprecate that. We all have the, that of course. Of, course. of our character. But when we think about, first of all, what enabled us to become good at our vocation, it's inevitably something rooted in the past when we weren't striving for awards or rewards and the other point is is that when we look back at our lives invariably when we say what really made me happy it's not the prize i want it's invariably the process that led me towards that prize i know that's a cliche wanda but it's a profoundly true one it's a cliche because it is profoundly true <laughs> all right fair enough and fair enough to say yes of course we all like the recognition or the achievements in some forms or another of course we don't want to give those up but they can't become the driver for the next year and the effort you put in and what you're trying it can't be all that there is um you'll coaches, make yourself miserable that way and we all know people who do make themselves miserable that way that's right that's right uh, i think clayton christensen wrote about this as well of saying you know he kept meeting people after graduation after graduation who would say you know i was so excited about my career and now i've completely lost my way and he said it's because they were pursuing the achievement as opposed to what they wanted to accomplish i think that's exactly. that's that's my thesis in a nutshell you got it as a wonderful thesis and i wholeheartedly support it okay adam this is a perfect point to take a break my guest today is adam gopnik he's a writer at the new yorker the book that we're talking about is the real work on the mystery of mastery and we'll be right back Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. 
Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive, all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Adam Gopnik. The book we're talking about is The Real Work on the Mystery of Mastery. I don't know why I keep stumbling on Mystery of Mastery. Well, it's a little bit of an alliteration there. game I was playing, Wanda. Maybe it was misfired. <laughs> very good. Very good. All right. What's interesting about this is when you go in, if I just summarize what we've said, when you start to learn something that you don't know at all, and you're going to become more skilled at it, mastery is loosely interpreted, not as in a certifiable master or expertise in something, though I think it's the same process. The notion is that you have to break it down into minute component parts. True for learning to draw, learning to box, or learning to have executive presence or communicate with a speech or any component you're trying to learn. And you, you work on those steps until they become part of you, natural for you. And then as those steps build is where you really start to see how the whole comes together in a way that fits and makes a bigger system and is natural. And it is a process over time with, of course, a lot of practice and so on. So those are the component process for what it means to master anything. At the same time, we're not going to master, meaning put our effort into something and genuinely be committed to prolonged pursuit with passion if it isn't for some internal reason, meaning for something we personally want to accomplish because we want to accomplish it. Yes, achievement is there. Yes, external goals are there. Yes, external validation is there. But those are not going to be the ones that drive you to actually achieve something. All right. If we take a page from Olympic athletes, particularly coaches of young Olympic athletes, they say that you will never be excellent as an athlete if you aren't doing it for your own reasons. If you're doing it for parents or for the coach, it's never going to work. So same idea in multiple fields. The last point I think is really worth highlighting is this notion of what great teachers do. Because if we're trying to, Madam is studying mastering, then we should look at who's helping us master. And two component parts about this that I think are really critical. One is an uh, unrelenting high standard. Like I'm not going to compromise on that high standard, but infinite patience in helping individuals get there provided they are consistently pursuing with passion. I think that's just such a brilliant statement for what it means to coach somebody. I don't care if you're in my profession or you're just a manager in an organization. Okay. All right, Adam, 
Is there, um, we were talking about achieve, uh, accomplishment. Is there anything we have to do to be able to do accomplishment in a better way? Like, what do we have to get right? Well, I, you know, a couple of things, I think. Um, one is that um, we need to uh, be patient with ourselves. In other words, the process by which all of those small counterintuitive steps becomes implanted in us, turns into a seamless sequence, um, is often is often just a matter of time, just a matter of patience, right? It will happen. It genuinely will happen. My, my favorite example of that from my book is I was the most unskilled um, drawer you could possibly have. I would hold a pencil and stab the paper like Lady Macbeth. Uh, and I had to learn to hold it underhand and do it. And it was a two-year process. I never got great, but I certainly got much better. And making that uh, that simple commitment to time is, I think, uh, uh, hugely important. We ha- live in a very impatient society, and in uh, adding patience to all of our formulas, I think, uh, hugely important one. Uh, it, you know, it's funny we're just talking about coaching, right? I was just listening moments before we started talking to. I'm a huge pro football fan, right? And the great receiver, a young receiver, Debo Samuel, is talking about his relationship with Kyle Shanahan the coach of the San Francisco 49ers. And he said, I hated him his first year because every detail mattered. When you were supposed to line up six inches to the left of the hash mark, he meant six inches. He didn't mean 12 inches. He didn't mean four inches. It was six inches. Drove him crazy because, who? you know, what does it matter? Well, of course, it matters crucially. But over time, he became very, very close to, to Shanahan because he recognized that he was giving him tools that would that would enable him to, uh, to succeed and, and to prevail. And so I think that, you know, the commitment to detail is something that's 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 hugely mm. important in mm. in in that way. And then the other thing, and this is sort of may sound a little counterintuitive, Wanda, is releasing ourselves from the need for perfection. And we talked about that before. Now, it's true about performers, great uh, coaches, leaders, whatever, is that part of what makes them effective is they're unafraid of imperfection. Right. But it's also the case i think for all of us that we don't have to count our own successes in terms of perpetually in terms of some external scale right there's lots of things in life that we do um well for ourselves you know i i use the metaphor i use throughout the book is the hummingbird's heartbeat right you know it turns out that that old story that hummingbirds and elephants have the same number of heartbeats in a lifetime is true the hummingbird expends a billion heartbeats in a hundred days, and the hum- and the elephant over a hundred years. But they both get the same number of heartbeats. Well, you and I, poetically, will in fact actually have the same number of heartbeats. And how we're going to expend those heartbeats is the crucial choice we get to make in life. And one of the ways we expend the heartbeats is in mastering things. And if my inner hummingbird is telling me that I'm I'm doing fine, that I'm getting the satisfaction from it. It doesn't matter what the great elephants outside myself believe. So that willingness to turn to uh, internal satisfaction, I think, is is hugely important. And the two things go hand in hand, Wanda. That's the point I'd make. You know, um, there's a wonderful expression in French. It's called the Le Violin de Anger, the Anger's violin. Anger was a fantastically great painter, but all he really loved was his violin. And in French, everyone will tell you if you have some secondary passion, mine is music, right, as well, um, that that's a very sustaining thing, right? Everybody needs to have a violin to go along with their paint box. And you 
Angra, the great painter, was never a great violinist. But without his commitment, his passion for the violin, he would not have been the painter uh, he became. Our secondary passions, I think, fuel our primary vocations. It's interesting. It's also interesting for so many of the leaders that I encounter that have shut out all the other interesting components of their lives in order to focus on the job. And then we find at some point they become uninteresting as human beings. Frequently, we see that one. But then the stress starts to get to them because they don't have the secondary pursuit. And what you're saying, in effect, is that there's this willingness to be imperfect the willingness to keep doing, the willingness to have patience with yourself, the willingness to spend time on something that is the fuel for all the great normal work that we do day in and day out. It's a very interesting idea. Hmm. Yeah. I, I, do you, I don't know anyone who I admire in that way who seems to me a hugely, uh, uh, in the proper sense, a hugely accomplished individual who doesn't have a secondary passion that, that, that supports their uh, their life. Mine is cooking. I, mean, I love music, right? But cooking is the thing I do every day. I could stop cooking tomorrow and the world would not know the difference, but I would know the difference, right? right. And the release of chopping onions after a day making sentences is very uh, profound for me. And I think you find it again and again throughout history in the, in the people that we admire and love, great philosophers who uh, love to um, build cabins or... Uh, uh, do gardening. Einstein, who again was someone who who turned to his violin for support and sustenance. I, I, it's very rare that you read the life of an admirable person who was not equally connected to a secondary passion secondary as he was passion. to a primary pursuit. All right. So I want to talk about patience because all, everybody I deal with is out of it. <laughs> so there isn't, I mean, it's like micro thin and attention spans are micro thin and so on. Is it your hypothesis that pursuing this secondary accomplishment that isn't going to be our main thing is really what helps us hone our patience? Or do you think there's some other things that would be helpful? Uh, you know, I, to be honest with you, Wanda, confessing imperfection, I never thought about it in quite those terms. But yes, I think that that's true. I think that um, every time we pursue a new passion. We are instructing ourselves in patience because we're starting again at base level. You know, when I'm writing, I'm a pretty good writer. I've been doing it six hours a day for 40 years. I know the moves. It no longer, it still gives me enormous joy because I love to do it, but it's not, it doesn't teach me in that way um, about um, myself. If I go out bicycling or if I go to attempt a new recipe or struggle with something on the piano. I'm reconnected to those primal purposes and to the primal satisfactions of them. So yes, I think we learn patience through the secondary passions very often, which then helps us expand our breath, our lungs in our our primary ones. I, I guess I do think, though I hadn't thought of it in quite those terms, I do think that's true. Interesting. All right, I'm gonna flip this on you, which is maybe unfair. But you talk about the great teachers who have infinite patience. How do you think they manage that level of infinite patience? I think, and I'm not a great teacher myself, Wanda, to be honest with you. I'm a good, I'm a great student, but not perhaps a great teacher. The, the, it's a psychological makeup in which you genuinely take somebody else's uh, 
pursuits with as much their accomplishments please you as much as your own it's a very special kind of makeup great coaches have it great teachers have it great editors in my world great editors i know a great editor who has published one piece under his own name in his entire life because he with exquisite taste and judgment takes more pleasure in sublimating his own ego into other people's writing than in expressing his own um that's true about all the great teachers when you come back and say i've done this they take as much pleasure in that as they do in their own pursuits and that i think is the crucial is the crucial quality it's not i can say that because it's not what i possess right i'm too egocentric to genuinely i have assistants and apprentices and i try to uh push them forward as much as i can but there is a very special quality to a truly great teacher which involves having enough ego to be sure of your judgment and to be able to sacrifice your ego enough to sublimate it into other people's um, accomplishments. I think there is in this notion that uh, modern leadership roles, modern management roles are one part expertise and one part something I call spanning, which is stepping outside of your expertise. I think it's entirely possible that great leaders hold on to some components that they take great joy in being able to do themselves. Yes. And some components in which they take great joy in watching others do exceptionally well. And it's keeping that blend in the right balance that probably makes for a great leader and a bit more patience, perhaps. I don't know. Yes, I think that's true. You know, I'll give you an uh, with, with at the risk of seeming to to butter up my boss. I'll give you an example that's very close to my experience. David Remnick, uh, who's the editor of New Yorker and has been now for twenty five years, um, was a writer just like me when when we were all starting out, and yet all of us were confident David would could be a great editor of the magazine. Why? It's because he was always the one who was in your doorway when you had published something that he liked to congratulate you on it and to discuss it with you, to analyze it with you. Wasn't He wasn't lobbying. He wasn't electioneering. He just genuinely took enormous pleasure in other people's writing as in his own. He had plenty of ego about his own writing, and he still gives us all lessons about it. But that was a genuine component of his personality, that he, he genuinely took pleasure in other people's um, uh, accomplishments in writing, which is an unusual thing among writers who tend to be highly competitive. I think everybody, many people are highly competitive. It's also part of the secret that makes you great at anything you do. The question is, when does that competition become a problem? Yes. As opposed to an asset. It's an interesting <laughs> one. Interesting one. All right. Now, release from perfection. Yes, wholeheartedly agree. And yet so many people are afraid that if they make that small detail mistake, A, somebody will notice it, B, it will cost a bunch of money, or they'll get called on the carpet, or so on. So how? what's your advice, any perspective on how to get more comfortable with the imperfection? It, this is a, a tricky, complicated question, right? Because when we speak of the virtues of imperfection, we don't mean be sloppy in what you do. I spend all day, every day, trying to craft and to carpenter and perfect the sentences I'm writing. I don't want them to be imperfect. And we certainly don't want someone who's responsible for the ascent of a rocket, right, or the descent of a submarine to say, it's more or less right in the formula. I'm I'm let's not I'm not concerned about it. We'll we'll get it. We don't want imperfection in those in in those in those fields. 
But what we do want is, uh, you know, a unique, uh, uh, a unique human touch is the is the the experience of that you know one of my i had not thought of this before wanda but one of my favorite movies is apollo 13 and one of my favorite performances in movies is ed harris's performance as the as the controller of that flight and what makes that so great is is he says we don't have time for guessing we can't guess we got to solve all of these problems but he does it in a context in which he is a human being seeking to save these three guys up in that capsule And he's going to simultaneously uh, demand that his team come up with solutions, but he's not bullshitting them, right, about <laughs> that he doesn't have the solutions. And we're going to remember he has that beautiful moment when he says, you know, let's work the problem, gentlemen, let's work the problem. And right. that's what is a, a good leader does in that way. He doesn't say, you know, I, I've got it. You know, the worst leaders are the ones who say, you know, I take no responsibility and I have nothing to uh, (laughs) I have nothing to do with it. It's the one who says, "Okay, we have a problem. Let's work the problem together. Right. And that sense of saying we have a problem. I don't know the solution. We got to do it together is the essence of what creates psychological safety, the willingness for people to take a risk to put something forward. It's a little more complicated than that, but that's like one of the core components that again gets your team saying, okay, well, let's try this. Well, what about that? Or where are we? That experimentation, not on the astronauts that are about to die, but in the lab that lets you come up with the solution. And knowing you're not going to be punished for that, that that's, you know, and if you're wrong, everyone will understand you're trying to, you're trying to solve the problem. Right. Right. It's the saying, I don't know means that there isn't some solution out there I'm supposed to suddenly guess and be perfect on. It's not a hidden trap. It's I don't oh, yeah. know. Let's I don't end. know let's yet. It's yeah. I don't know yet, which is very different from nobody knows. Okay. All right. So again, I think if I'm listening to your story, that in some ways pursuing something for the sake of accomplishment at it, something you haven't yet mastered, is a way of accepting your own imperfection. I mean, you said that in terms of humor is a way of accepting your own imperfection. But it's kind of humbling to start in a drawing class with a master drawer when you don't know how to hold the pencil and you're going to struggle with figuring it out for a while. Or get up with a great, I have a great boxing coach, a wonderful champion named Joey Contrada. And I don't know what Joey thought the first time I walked into his gym, right? And had no idea what, you know, of the of the basis as a man in his 60s, right? But I worked at it. I worked hard at it, made a commitment to it. And I learned a lot. Do you want to put me in the ring? Uh, uh, you know, no, you don't, unless you can find some other little Jewish intellectual to pit me up against. Do I take enormous pleasure, satisfaction? I'm going over to the gym in a couple of hours from doing it. Have Joey and I bonded as a team in a very profound way that enriches both of our lives? Am I a better writer because I'm a a, a boxer of a kind? All Yes, absolutely to all those things. It's interesting. Um, all of this reminds me of the work of Rob Cross and Karen Dillon. The book is called Micro Stressors. We did a podcast a couple months ago about this one. And the essence of the idea is there's a tiny percent of the top performers who seem not to be stressed by the day in and day out small things that happen. They mean to manage to maintain a sense of balance for themselves. Mm-hmm. And what is it that they do? One of the things that they do is they have secondary activities, meaning they have groups that are not part of their day job with whom they have meaningful interactions. Bonding, you just said with your boxing instructor, that's a place you have a meaningful interaction, even if it only happens once a month. 
But that outside pursuit, I think, is they would say creates balance. You're going to say helps with patience with ourselves, helps with a sense of accomplishment, and helps with accepting our imperfection. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing I'd add, <laughs> it also gives us a, a an opiate, a, a cognitive yeah. opiate, a self-generated opiate. We feel good. You know, it's hard for me. I love to write, Wanda. I just love doing it, right? But it doesn't give me a high, right? Because it's my work. It's what I do six hours a day. I go out boxing and I, I box for an hour and I'm as high as a kite because that cognitive opiate, that sense of satisfaction is so strong in me. And that's a very positive thing for us to replenish. And the paradox is we replenish it more readily with those secondary pursuits we take up in middle age than we can with the primary pursuit with your right. teaching, my writing, right? Because those are the things we've been doing so long. We love them, but they're, they're second nature to us. We want to get back in touch with our primary nature. Primary nature. All right. One and a half minutes, Adam. With all of this, what now takes you out of your comfort zone? Well, um, I, I continue dancing I, with my daughter. I continue boxing with my coach. I continue drawing when I can uh, with my teacher. Um what takes me out of my comfort zone is learning from other people. I know that sounds very cliched, but it's true. I was on the road with this book. And the last thing, Wanda, I ever thought I had written was a book about late in life learning. That wasn't my intention, right? And yet so many people came to me uh, who specialize in late in life learning or were engaged in it, retired people, right? Who felt vindicated that their hobbies, so-called, in fact, were vital and empowering and emancipating to themselves, that they were soulful things. And I realized, oh my God, that's exactly what I'm writing about. Only I have to be a little more humble and understand that I'm writing for the woman who's doing uh, watercolor classes, uh, as well as for the, you know, for the Abraham Lincolns of the world. That was humbling and instructive. And it's one of the things that makes it worthwhile for a writer to get out on the road and meet his readers. All right. So I'm going to come away with one watchword out of all many watchwords, but one in particular is this notion of the humbling and the willingness to pursue something that you are not yet mastered that keeps that humility alive, the passion alive, the primary forces alive, the patience alive, and a whole lot of other things. I, you know, what a great you insight. Never be afraid to look like an idiot because you are. And so, <laughs> and so was everyone else. So absolutely. And so are the people you are trying to lead as well. Adam, what a great conversation. I've really, really enjoyed this when thinking about how, in effect, how we learn um, by breaking things down into the small micro components and sticking with the patients to get there. Much more to it than that. But what a great conversation. Terrific talking to you, Wanda. I really enjoyed it. I love the way our, our divergent viewpoints come together on a, in, a, in a common set of features. Excellent. All right. Um, for those listening, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please like us on your favorite podcast server. Check out our subscription service and other materials at outofthecomfortzone.com. And join us next week for another episode in getting out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.